thinking it'd be a good idea, Ed. Maybe maybe Ed can go to our website and set up a poll and do kind of a, like a who wore it better type of thing. <laughs> like maybe <laughs> I, the competition isn't very stiff, but I still don't like my odds. So anyway, but it's good to see everybody this morning, and I, I am glad that you're here. I hope you guys have had a great week last week, and man, I hope you've come here this morning ready to hear from the Lord. I, I hope you've prepared your hearts to do that. I pray that's what happens this morning. Why don't you go ahead and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study of this book this morning. As most of you guys know, in, in, in a lot of the messages from 2 Thessalonians 2, we've, man, we've covered some challenging verses. We've covered some verses that that really make you think, and we've covered some verses that have led us to some pretty crazy places. And so, it, but, but in, in the midst of that, what we've been doing oftentimes is it's kind of led us down the path of exposing many false beliefs for what they really are, so much so that last week I was starting to feel like I think I'm running low on groups to offend because I've got like three or four already, you know, in the in the chamber here. I'm I'm trying to think of anybody else. Time would only allow me so many, but it, but I, I assure you that isn't isn't my goal in the slightest. I, I take no joy in that. It's just the reality that the truth can be offensive. <laughs> I mean, the way we all got saved began with a very offensive truth that we had to come to grips with, didn't we? It's the fact that we were a low-down, no-good, rotten sinner, and there's nothing we could do to be good enough to save ourselves, so we were in need for someone to save us from our sins. That's an offensive truth right from the rip. That's what this whole gathering is all about. And that's the reality of proclaiming the truth. It is by its very nature offensive sometimes, whether you're trying to be offensive or not. And due to where we are, due to the fact of where we are this morning in Second Thessalonians, it will again be necessary to speak some hard truths in opposition to a particular belief system in order to adequately break down this passage. So, so that's where we're going to be headed this morning as we study verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2. But before we get there, let, let's take a second to talk about some of what we covered last week. Last week, if you'll recall, we talked about the Antichrist and how after his deadly head wound that Satan himself will enter the body of the Antichrist. And after that, he's going to hit the scene and he's going to hit the scene with, man, he's going to put on a show, power and signs and, and lying wonders, putting on a show for the ages. And through that, people will be deceived. And we spent some time looking at the, the, the sad reality of the of what the people are facing that refuse to receive the love of the truth it it, it really is it's a it's a very sad reality and and what makes it even extra sad as far as i'm concerned is is that a lot of the people that i believe are being referenced in this passage are people that we know that's how late we are in the game in all likelihood we're talking about the people that refuse to receive the love of the truth as to be saved. That's the fate that we're talking about in some of these passages. They've been offered the truth, but they refuse to receive it as to be saved. They, they've told God with their life they don't want the truth. They want a lie. 
And so for those unbelievers that think they're going to just witness the rapture and then they'll know to call on the name of Jesus to be saved, God's saying, I'm not playing that game. If you want a lie, I'm going to give you the lie. And so after the rapture, for those that wouldn't receive the truth and they wanted a lie, God will send them strong delusions so that they will continue to believe the lie. Our passage says they didn't receive the truth because they had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's the why. It wasn't that they couldn't get there intellectually or or that God somehow kept them from the truth. No, it was offered to them. They wanted a lie because they didn't want God or anybody else telling them what to do. And as we begin this morning, as we continue in this chapter, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're about to contrast those that refuse to receive the truth with the Thessalonians who did receive the truth. And and the Thessalonians receiving that truth was, was something that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were extremely thankful for. They were extremely passionate about this. So first we're going to see the obligation to gratitude, the obligation to, gr- of, 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 to gratitude, of gratitude. What did I say? I think it's supposed to be two. Will, what's your study sheet say? Oh, well, okay. Of, of it is. Of, two, one of, the, one of those. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. It says, it says, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Okay, so the first word of, of, of the verse is, is obviously the word but. Okay, of course, but is a word that's used to connect ideas that contrast. And from a a bird's eye view, the the big picture of what Paul, Silas, and Timothy are saying to the church of the Thessalonians is there are a lot of people out there that won't receive the love of the truth because they have pleasure in unrighteousness. But we're thankful to God that you guys have believed and have been saved and you have received the love of the truth. It says they're, they're bound or they... They have a a sense of a moral obligation to give thanks, and not just to give thanks, but to give thanks always or or all the time. That's the the aerial view of what's going on in this verse. That's the big picture. But as we dive in a little bit deeper, what's important to see as Paul, Silas, and Timothy express this thankfulness and this gratitude is what it is they're actually so grateful for. Now, now listen, it's important that we're always to be grateful and thankful for all things, right? We, we previously learned that in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, that we're to give thanks in everything. <laughs> and, and man, we are a group of people that we could literally go on and on with all the things that we should be thankful for, right? Food and shelter, the, our salvation, clothing, some health, jobs, our spouse, our kids, just go through the list. My guess is not too many of you took a cold shower this morning, right? You had hot water. Some of you didn't shower at all, but that wasn't because you didn't have hot water. That's, that's, for, that's for other reasons. But, but the point is, especially those of us in this country, we 
we've got so much to be thankful for that it could literally consume the vast majority of our prayers. And man, I certainly hope it consumes a good portion of them. But I want us to notice the specific place that Paul, Silas, and Timothy's gratitude is actually directed here. They were thankful for the salvation of the Thessalonians, but they specifically say in verse 13 that they were bound to give thanks always for you. (laughs) The you are the Thessalonians. They, They weren't simply thanking God for their family or their wife or their kids, though that would be a great thing. They're thanking God for the people that they were ministering to. (laughs) That's how much these people that they had led to the Lord and that they were establishing in the faith meant to them. And listen, this isn't some sort of obscure verse. This is a common theme. In fact, they said the same thing in the last chapter. (laughs) 2 Thessalonians 1.3, it says they're bound to thank God always for them. Back in their first letter to the Thessalonians, they said the same, it was the same sentiment in 1 Thessalonians 1-2. They're giving God thanks always for the church of the Thessalonians and for their spiritual state. And one of the reasons they were so thankful for them is because they understood who they were. Verse 13 identifies who they were. You know who they were? That's their brethren. They recognize them for who they were. These people aren't just anybody. These these people are our family. These people are our spiritual family. They're brethren. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. Just like God intends for our physical family to be something special to us, He also intends for our spiritual family to be something special to us. They, They should mean so much to us that we actually find ourselves feeling an obligation to thank the Lord for them, just like Paul, Silas, and Timothy did with the Thessalonians. That's how much the people in our spiritual family, those people where you're sitting beside right now, that's how much they should mean to us. And this is so important for us to see this because this gives you insight into where Paul, Silas, and Timothy's hearts were and and where our hearts need to be. But it's also important to point out because, because... This is just, quite frankly, such a foreign idea to most believers. I mean, when is the last time that you felt gratitude like that towards an individual that was not a part of your physical family? So God's trying to show us that's the dynamic he's after in the church. Hearts of gratitude expressed to God for those in our spiritual family. But it wasn't just that Paul, Silas, and Timothy understood who the Thessalonians were to them, which was their brethren. It's that they understood who they were to God. This verse goes on to identify them as the beloved of the Lord. That's who they were. Wow, that's that's saying something. Listen, that's a special kind of love. In fact, it's exactly how God the Father (laughs) described God the Son after John the Baptist baptized Jesus in Matthew 3.17. It says, Lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son (laughs) in whom I am well pleased. The believers in the church of the Thessalonians are described the same way the Father described the Son. Now that's saying something. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they express this gratitude 
for people. And the reason is because of who these people were to them and who these people were to God. To them, they're their spiritual family. To the Lord, they were the beloved. Listen, the believers in Jesus Christ that comprise Cali Harbin Baptist Church, they're, they're not only your spiritual family. Those people, man, they're beloved to the Lord Jesus Christ. That person sitting next to you, that is somebody that is extremely special to God. It's someone that God loves. You may be struggling with something that they did or something that they said or the way that they hurt you, but don't forget who that person is. That person, though you may be upset with them, there may be some things in the past that they did or said about you, that person is part of your spiritual family. And they're a person God loves so much that he died for them. They're beloved to him. And when we see each other that way, that response should be gratitude for one another. You might feel like biting somebody's head off. You might feel like they deserve it. But you know that that person that you want to bite their head off, instead of doing that, you know what God did? He jumped on the cross. They're beloved to God. You may be fighting through being able to hardly stand them. They're beloved to God. And because of that, they should be to us too. Do you love the people in the body of Christ so much that you'd ever take time to thank God for them? That's what the body is supposed to look like, a group of people that views each other through the lens of, that's my family and that's a person beloved to God. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they, they talk about their gratitude for the church of the Thessalonians and, and for their salvation. And what they're doing is, is modeling the way that we ought to be grateful for each other and the lens through which we should see each other. And they express their, their gratitude through contrast. Because unlike those that refused to receive the truth, the Thessalonians did receive the truth and were saved as a result. And, and so as they express the, the gratitude for the salvation of the Thessalonians, what they do is, is they begin describing the salvation of the Thessalonians. They're thankful for their salvation, but then they start getting into details as to what this whole salvation thing was all about. And as they do that, they, they begin to describe some choices that God made as it relates to their salvation. And so next we're going to see the, the choosing of God. The choosing of of God. That's right, it was of. That's right. <laughs> the one who did my PowerPoint was right. <laughs> Whoever that may be in this room. The choosing of God. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2:13. It says but, but we are bound to give thanks all the way to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Here it is. Listen. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. All right. Now, in light of the doctrinal climate that we currently are living in, I do believe it's necessary to address and to debunk the Calvinistic rendering of this verse. This will not be a deep dive into Calvinism. If you want a deeper study on that, go back and 
Listen to what Corey did recently on, on Wednesday nights. But, but because of the pervasiveness of, of Calvinism in our society, it, it, in, in this time that we're living in, it wasn't always like this, but in this time we're living in, I do want to at least address this. Many of you guys would have a working knowledge of what Calvinism is, but for those that don't, Calvinism or, or Reformed theology as it's called, it's, it's the belief that before the foundation of the world, God chose and elected who would and wouldn't be saved. So before the foundation of the world, God arbitrarily chose certain individuals to be saved he, he, he irresistibly called them to himself and saved them. They couldn't have said no under any circumstances. And God did this for his own good pleasure. Now, on the other side of the coin, now keep in mind, the other side of the coin has to be true. It has to be true if what I just said is true anyway. On the other side of the coin, before the foundation of the world, God also arbitrarily chose certain individuals who wouldn't be saved, and he damned them to hell, and he also did this for his own good pleasure. There was nothing the reprobate could do about it, and he was pleased to create them to watch them burn. They claim God created all of mankind so depraved that we could not possibly respond positively to the gospel, even if we wanted to. In fact, we would never call on the name of Jesus to be saved because we were born so depraved we'd never want to. And so that's why God has to step in and irresistibly save those who he's chosen to save. Now, Calvinists may not like the way I framed that, but any honest Calvinist will have to give it to me. That is the cold, hard truth of what an honest Calvinist believes. If you just get to the bottom line, remove the fluff, and we just get into what it actually is, that's what it is in a nutshell. Now, for those that minimize the importance of landing in the appropriate place as it relates to Calvinism or the, or the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, if you minimize that, would you just take a second to evaluate and to consider what it does to the character of God. What does what I just explained do to the character of the holy God? On Calvinism, God hates certain individuals for no particular reason and damns them to eternity in hell for his own pleasure, of all things. Listen, man, here's my take on it characterizing God like that may not be a big deal to you, but I have a problem with it because that's not the character of my heavenly father. My earthly father went home to be with the Lord next month will be three years. And I knew my earthly father well. And if anyone ever tried to rewrite history and make a claim against his character and mischaracterize him to make him sound like something he wasn't, I would quickly nip that in the bud and I'd say, hold on just a second. That's not the character of my earthly father. No way. I'd have a real problem with that and I feel the same way about my heavenly father. <laughs> the way you're describing him, that's not the character of my heavenly father. And listen, there is not a verse anywhere near context that they use to prove this. 
There is, there's not. There are intelligent and biblical explanations for every proof text they believe that they have. Those explanations actually line up with the rest of Scripture and don't make a monster out of God, too. And, and, and for those that say, God doesn't need you to defend his character. <laughs> He's a big boy. I think he can handle it. You're right. He doesn't need me for anything. <laughs> but you know what he called me to do? He called me to be a defender of the truth. He called me to preach the word. And he called me to preach the full counsel of God even when it hurts. And that's what I intend to do with whatever time God gives me in my life. And, and if we're not going to preach against this belief system, rest assured, they're going to be preaching for it, and they're going to be preaching against ours. <laughs> so we can decide if we want to defend God's character, character, or if our character is the only character that we're passionate about defending. Because we sure do jump on that one quick, don't we? Don't you say a thing about me. Oh, God's the author of evil and damns people to hell for no apparent reason. Uh, if, 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 you know, that's what you believe, that's cool. Isn't that, how we, isn't that how we do? But boy, somebody says something against our character. Woo! Look out, buddy. So back to our verse. When the phrase chosen to salvation is used, it's, this is a place where this belief system tries to get some traction. But there, there's a major problem with how they're reading the verse, and it's actually very simple. You see, here, here's how most Calvinists read this verse, picking up in the second half of the verse. This is how they tend to read it. For God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation, period. They read it like there's a period there. It, it, like that's the end of the sentence. That's the end of the thought, but it keeps going, doesn't it? He chose them to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Listen, it's clear God's making a choice in this verse. It's just that quite simply, he's not making a choice as to who will be saved. He's making a choice as to how they will be saved. <laughs> he's not choosing the who, he's, he's choosing the how. The how is through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. And that is a choice that God made from the beginning. He did. That's, that's not how everyone who has ever lived has been saved but God chose that it would be how those of us who live right now are saved. It's a choice God made regard, regarding those of us living in the church age as to how we will be saved. People were saved differently prior to Christ's finished work on the cross. Hence, all the differences between how God is operating with mankind in the Old Testament versus how God is operating with mankind in the New Testament. Many people... Many people want to make salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament the same. And man, it doesn't fit and it doesn't make sense. After the New Testament of Jesus' blood, after that was implemented, the way God dispensed his grace to us changed, understandably so. And God knew from the beginning how this whole thing was going to be, how it was all going to shake out. God knew from the beginning he was going to send his son to die on the cross for our sins. That's why at the end of Revelation 13, 8, it says that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. 
And God also knew that the method for how someone comes to be saved would change as a result of the lamb being slain. In Acts 15, 18, it says, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And you see, God knew what his works would be from the beginning because he chose it. But even though God knew what his works would be from the beginning, many of the works he would ultimately do, listen, many of those were previously a mystery to everybody else. But God knew what he was going to do from the beginning because he chose what he was going to do. And he chose that there would be individuals living in a particular period of time after Jesus' work on the cross that would be saved by sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. And I'm pretty sure most of us at least understand half of that, right? We're familiar with what the belief of the truth is, right? It's the belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ and and who he was, who Jesus was, God in human flesh, and and what he did on the cross to pay for our sins. But, But I'm not so sure we totally understand the part about the sanctification of the Spirit. And I want to make sure that that we do. And and in order to understand that, first we need to understand something that was previously a mystery that's described for us in Colossians 1.25. And here's what it says in Colossians 1.25. Listen, it says, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. Listen, there, there are seven mysteries in the Bible. A mystery in the Bible isn't something that can't be known or that God doesn't want us to know. A mystery in the Bible is something that was previously unknown that has now been revealed like this verse even describes. And what's The mystery, verse 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery was the indwelling of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Listen, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, his spirit took up residence on the inside of us. John 14, 16, and 17, it tells us that the the Spirit or the Comforter will be in us and abide with us forever. (laughs) This indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you see that it's on a a permanent basis. Ephesians 4.30 tells us the Holy Spirit sealed us until the day of redemption or the day in which our bodies will be redeemed which is going to happen at the rapture. And you see, that was something new. That was a new idea. In the Old Testament, no one had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on a permanent basis. You understand that? And so that's what's being explained. Keep in mind, the Savior hadn't come on the scene yet. He hadn't died. He hadn't risen. And so because the once and for all sacrifice hadn't been made, there was no permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because in the Old Testament, they are in a faith works economy, a faith plus works economy. Sacrifices were a part of the deal. Good works were a part of the deal. But the sacrifices couldn't permanently take away 
the sins, so they had to keep sacrificing, and so their salvation remained in jeopardy, and so therefore the Holy Spirit didn't permanently indwell in them. If you doubt that, read Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel 33, and it lays out a clear picture that the Old Testament Israelites, the people in the Old Testament, they lived with their salvation in jeopardy. They lived with their salvation on probation. But after the once and for all sacrifice had been made to take away sins past, present, and future, then the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God was made possible. Hebrews 10.9 describes it like this. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. Talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament economy was, economy, the Old Testament economy was taken away to establish the New Testament economy that we're currently living in. Verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So listen, in the Old Testament, sacrifices had to be continually made that could never take away sins. But you see, through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we then had access to our sins being taken away forever. And what happened was, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, like we've seen, the Holy Spirit took up residence on the inside of us on a permanent basis. But that wasn't all. He was placed in us, and you know what else happened? We were placed in Him. We were sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We were set apart by the Holy Spirit and placed in Him. The Holy Spirit was placed in us, and then we were set apart, and then, and then that Holy Spirit set us apart and placed us in Him. Ephesians 1.4, it, it, it teaches us this. It says, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now, we're on to another Calvinistic proof text. And when you actually read what it says without any preconceived ideas on top, it really isn't that difficult. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us. Who's us in the context? It's, it's the church. The book is written to the New Testament church, and he is breaking out for them a new context. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us, those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ that comprise the church, he chose that those believers would be placed in him. <laughs> Why? So that we could be holy and without blame before him in love. Because based on our own merits, can we be holy and without blame before him? <laughs> no, we couldn't. And so we were placed in him and, and so now that now that we're in him when god looks at us he doesn't see our sin he sees god's righteousness 
Philippians 3, 8 and 9 says, beginning at the end of verse 8, it says, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. We had no righteousness of our own, but Jesus' righteousness was imputed to us by faith, and we were placed in him. And again, being in him causes, causes God to see Jesus' righteousness instead of our sinfulness. So he's in us, and we're in him, and these two things go hand in hand. 1 John, John 4.13 confirms it when he says, Hereby we know that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us his spirit. Both are simultaneously true. We dwell in him and he dwells in us. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body whether we be jews or gentiles whether we be bond or free and have been all made to drink into one spirit listen it's the same for jews and gentiles we're saved the same way and what happens when we call on the name of jesus to be saved according to this verse the spirit baptizes us or the spirit immerses us into one body whose body christ's body in other words the spirit sanctifies us or sets us apart by placing us in christ we're baptized in him and listen what what i've been describing was something new but it was something god knew he was going to do from the beginning so go back to our passage now in second thessalonians 2 13 here's what's happening in second thessalonians 2 13 it's saying from the beginning, God made a choice. God chose that the group of people alive during the church age would be saved in a very particular way. He didn't choose who would and wouldn't be saved. He chose how they would be saved. And he chose that they would be saved through belief of the truth and that what would happen as we called on Jesus and believed in the truth is the sanctification of the Spirit. And so what was happening as we called on the name of Jesus to be saved is we were sanctified by the Spirit as the Spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit took up residence on the inside of us and He was placed in us while at the same time we were placed in Christ or in Him. We were baptized by the Holy Spirit into His body. Never before the church age had anyone been placed in Christ and never before had anyone had the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But God made a choice and he chose that in the period of time we're living in after the resurrection, that would be the way that we're saved. So that's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy are are describing God didn't choose certain individuals while damning others he chose how it is that individuals would be saved in this period of time after Christ's work on the cross which was something new and different than any other period of time of history and that salvation that the church of the Thessalonians had received and Paul Silas and Timothy were describing this was something that they always thanked God for they were so 
thankful for this. And so that's what the choosing of God is. And, and next, what we're going to see is the call of God. That was the choosing of God. Now, now I want us to see the call of God. Look at our, look at our next verse in 2 Thessalonians 2.14. It says, Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so here's what this verse describes about the call of of God. First, the call of God, it comes by giving the gospel. The call of God, it comes by giving the gospel. That's what verse 14 says. God called the Thessalonians by our gospel, it says, or by Paul, Silas, and Timothy's proclamation of the gospel. They gave the Thessalonians the gospel, and through that proclamation of the gospel, God was calling the Thessalonians to salvation. Now, Calvinists like to refer to this irresistible call, right? They, they, this, this irresistible call from God to salvation to the chosen or to the elect. But let me ask you, is, it, is there anything irresistible seemingly to you about the call that we're, that we're talking about here? The call of God to salvation? Is there, is there something that's irresistible about that? I, I, can't, I cannot see it anywhere. You'd have to read that into the text. No, it's like a phone call. You can call, but they still have to receive it. You can offer someone a gift, but they still have to accept it. This was no different. But this call, it, it, it wasn't irresistible. Here's how it went according to Acts 17. Acts 17, it gives us the historical account of how the Thessalonians got saved. And in, in this account, in Acts 17, 4 and 5, it says, some believed and some didn't. See how that works? That's how it works oftentimes, isn't it? They were called by Paul, Silas, and Timothy's gospel, or they were called by Paul, Silas, and Timothy sharing the gospel with them, but some received the call and some didn't. They went into the synagogue of the Jews in Thessalonica, and according to Acts 17.3, Paul begins preaching the gospel to them. Paul's in there telling them, hey, Jesus, he's the Christ. Do you realize that? He is the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for that was prophesied about in the scriptures. And he must needs have suffered because he was the one that had to come to pay the price for our sins on the cross. And he's in there telling them he, he died. But the beautiful thing is, guys, he rose from the dead and he resurrected and he conquered sin. And now he's offering salvation to all those that will call on his name in faith and receive him. And you know what was happening in that moment? God was calling all of them. And some answered the call and received the love of the truth so that they might be saved. And others didn't answer that call, and they rejected the call, and they didn't receive the love of the truth. And if the rapture would have happened right then, they would have been damned. And if you've never been saved this morning, you know what was happening as I was just laying out the gospel? God was calling you again. 
Will you receive the call this time? And then you just have to love how Paul, Silas, and Timothy say, God called the Thessalonians, listen to this, by our gospel. I love that. The the personal, you have to love how personal they make it. But as we look at that terminology, man, I really want us to evaluate something in our own lives that I believe is unbelievably important to evaluate. How many people in the last year did God call by your gospel? Listen, though we want everyone to receive the love of the truth, it's actually not our job to make them receive the message, but it is our job to share the message. Forget one year. How many people in the last two years did God call by your gospel? We tend to hear that, and you know what we do? That would convict me. That, ooh. Yeah. And then we walk out the door and not a single thing changes. We just enjoyed getting slapped around a little bit. That's it. Nothing changes if nothing changes. Something's got to change. Man, what a joy and a privilege that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had. God used the gospel that they preached to save the lost. What could possibly be better? And then they got to watch him grow from there. Wow, that's what it's all about. Do you want that in your life? Do you want to be a part of that? So so we've seen that the call of God was by the proclamation of the gospel. And and then next we see that the call of God, it is to obtain the glory of the Lord. It's to obtain the glory of the Lord. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2.14 again. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ is something that's obtained. And it's something that's obtained based on our service for Christ after salvation. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, it gives us a lot of clarity on this truth in this book. I want us to look at it. It says, therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they, might also, they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now again... Just like has happened so often in our passage, our cross-references all lead us to Calvinistic proof texts. We find ourselves crossing paths with a term that those of the Calvinist persuasion tend to gravitate towards, which is the elect. Now, if this verse means what they say it means, and if the elect means what they say it means, and it means that the elect are the people that were elected by God to be saved before the foundation of the world, And somebody may want to tell Paul that. Because he seems to think that he needs to endure all things that have happened in his life. Why? For the elect's sake. If everything has already been determined by God, then why does Paul believe him enduring all things is going to have some sort of impact on the elect? How does that work? On Calvinism, all the elect get saved 
no matter if anyone endures anything or not. And quite simply, biblically, the elect aren't those that are predestined to be saved. They are those that are already saved. (laughs) Those that are saved have been elected and chosen to some specific things. But But I want us to focus on the rest of the verse, which has a lot of similarities to our verse in 2 Thessalonians. We see here that it references salvation in Christ Jesus. And listen, hang with me. He wanted the elect, those already saved, he wanted them to not just obtain salvation. He wanted them to obtain it with eternal glory. And in the context of this eternal glory, these verses in 2 Timothy 2 go on to say in the next verse, verse 11, goes on to say that it is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll also will deny us. Are you seeing how it is that we obtain eternal glory? With whom it is suffering. <laughs> Listen, these verses are referencing reigning with Jesus Christ in the millennium. But that reigning is conditional upon suffering. Not entering the kingdom, the reigning. It's a conditional upon suffering. We have to understand on this side of eternity, we're called to bear a cross, not wear a crown. And how we bear that cross determines our eternal glory, and it determines our inheritance in the kingdom. Colossians 3, 23, uh, Colossians 3, 23 and 24, it says, our inheritance is conditional upon our serving says, and whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. The reward of the inheritance or the obtaining of the eternal glory comes from serving the Lord. Suffering and service are two of the ways that we obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that we've been called to. And listen, 2 Thessalonians 2.14 that we're studying, it says we were called by the gospel to obtain that. We were called by the gospel with the intention that we would obtain the eternal glory and that we would invest into the eternal. And in 2 Timothy, we we were just in chapter 2 talking about obtaining salvation with eternal glory and, and we've connected that with suffering and serving, but But in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, I want you guys to see something. In in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, I want you to see what that suffering and serving was actually connected to. It's very interesting. It may not be what you think. 2 Timothy 1.11, it says, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Do you see that? You know what caused Paul to suffer? Serving God and others through the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel was the cause of the suffering. That's why when 2 Timothy 2, 2 and 3 tells us to invest the word of God. You guys know this verse. Invest the word of God in faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's why the next verse has a warning, doesn't it? 
the next verse warns us that we're to endure hardness as a good soldier. This isn't going to be easy stuff. He warns us because that serving is connected to suffering. It won't be easy to minister the gospel to others and disciple them and establish them in the faith so that they can do the same with others. That's not going to be an easy task. A few verses later in 2 Timothy 2.9, Paul says, Wherein I suffer trouble. This is the theme, isn't it? He suffers trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds or, or being put in shackles or chains. And you just have to love this next part. But the word of God is not bound. <laughs> Remember, if we suffer, we'll also reign with him in eternal glory. Sometimes the suffering we have in our lives, sometimes it's something we brought upon ourselves. And we go, oh, God, I'm suffering. Oh, yeah, you, that was you. Right? In the, but, but other times it can come from doing what God has called us to do can be the reason that we're experiencing suffering in the next chapter in second timothy 3 beginning in verse 10 paul says but thou hast fully known my doctrine manner of life purpose faith long suffering charity patience persecutions afflictions which came unto me at antioch and iconium and at lystra what persecutions i endured but out of them all the lord delivered me and here he goes Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. He suffered for living godly, and all of us that live godly in Christ Jesus will also suffer. And if you say, man, I live a pretty godly life, and that has actually never caused me to suffer a whole lot. Have you ever taken a second to consider how bad it is that we actually might be missing the mark on this one? Because understand that there are many cases where living a godly life and applying Christian morals to our lives, it won't cause us persecution. In fact, it'll take us places. It'll get us raises. It'll move us up the corporate ladder. It'll help us to find favor amongst people. People are fine if you stay at home and you live your little moral lives. They don't care for it too much when that gospel comes out. You start being bold with the gospel. All that live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. You okay with that? I'm not sure we've reached a place where we are okay with that. I think our lives would look different. Listen, the obtaining of eternal glory is conditional upon suffering and serving and the suffering and the serving is connected to ministry. It's connected to everything we just saw, proclaiming the gospel and discipling people and establishing them in the faith. And what we have to understand is this. In the next life, it's all going to be worth it. If that becomes our lives, which I don't think there's very many of us, self-included, that are really achieving that. If it is, though, oh my goodness. Do you realize how worth it it's going to be? It's so hard to see it now. Every ounce of pain and suffering from serving will be worth every second of it. It's so hard to see it now, but it's going to be so apparent then. Romans 8.16 describes suffering like this. Would you listen to this closely? We're almost done. The Spirit itself 
beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. There it is, eternal glory with Christ connected to suffering with Christ. But here's the best part. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Though right now the thought of suffering on Christ's behalf seems so horrible, the things that people do to us, the things people may say about us, it seems so horrible, and this verse says the sufferings of this present time, they're not even worthy to be in the same discussion with the glory that's going to be in the future. It doesn't even deserve to be compared. This thing isn't even close. And listen, according to the verse we're studying, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, according to this verse, God saved us. And one of the purposes in saving us was so that we would obtain the eternal glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the purposes for it. It wasn't just about hauling us off to heaven when we die. It was about our life here on earth being a life that is lived in such a way that it obtains eternal glory listen how is that going in your life what has god revealed to you that you need to change will you deal with that this morning as the band comes father thank you for for your word and god thank you for purpose god we we sometimes we we look at what you've called us to and and sometimes i i feel like we we look at it as a burden, God, and it's actually a great privilege. <laughs> Who else can say that they have a purpose for their life that outlasts the temporal? Only those that believe in you, God, and we love you, Lord. I pray that our lives would say that. I pray we would be as individuals all that we've been called to be. I pray that, God, that we would be as a church all that we've called to be. I pray I would be what I've been called to be. And God, that you would just help us to apply these truths to our lives and for things to change in our lives. May this be a year for that. Father, we love you. In your name we pray.